Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. There's a flow of thought here that runs from chapter 4, verse 7, through to chapter 5, verse 10. Paul has been talking about how, in the mystery of God's ordination, he often uses frail vessels, jars of clay, he says in 4.7, for the display and proclamation of his glory. In this way, people are discouraged from worshiping the messenger and are helped to keep their focus on God himself. Doing it this way also helps people to understand the reality of the Christian life, which is always an intermingling of suffering and glory, weakness and power, cross and crown. And so Paul walks by faith in this world because appearances can be deceiving. And therefore, he finds it very helpful to focus on things that are fixed and stable. Paul is training his gaze on eternal realities that helps him stay the course through the ups and downs, twists and turns of human life. And so now in chapter 5, verses 1 to 10, Paul begins to reflect in greater detail upon these eternal realities. There are things he can see in the future that give him strength and encouragement in the present. That's the basic idea here. Now, full disclosure, the next 10 verses are probably the most disputed verses in the entire book. The language is a bit complicated, and Paul is assuming familiarity with his previous in-person teaching on these matters, which, of course, we don't have access to. Nevertheless, I think it is possible to piece together what he is saying. And when we're helped to see what he sees, then we can begin to experience the same encouragement that he found in these precious realities. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. Anytime a chapter begins with the word for, you should go back and figure out what it is there for. In this case, Paul is expanding upon what he just said in the previous two verses. In chapter 4, verses 17 to 18, he said, For this momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. There is a present passing reality, and there is a future eternal reality. And Paul finds fuel for the former by focusing on the latter. And so he begins to speak about those things at some length. He compares life in the present, passing reality, with the experience of living in a tent. Now, of course, to any Bible reader, that metaphor makes sense. Israel lived in tents 
on their way from bondage in Egypt to possession in the promised land. Tents are for travelers. Buildings are for people who have arrived. And Paul says that if his present body is showing some wear and tear, well, no worries. That must mean that his journey is coming to an end. He's getting close to the promised land. And there he will be given a permanent home. Now, it's easy to get lost in all these metaphors, so it might be helpful just to lay them all out in some kind of organized fashion. Tent, in verse 1, is a metaphor for present physical body. Paul's tent is fading away. It is old, thin, threadbare, and patchy. Perhaps you can identify with that. A house not made by hands, also called a building in verse 1, is a metaphor for the glorified body that we receive at the resurrection. Paul spoke about that at length in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, for example, in verses 42 to 43, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Closed quote. All right, so... At the resurrection, those of us who are in Christ receive some kind of imperishable body. These bodies will be like Christ's resurrection body. We will eat in these bodies. We will walk. We will work. We will speak. We will recognize friends. We will be recognized by friends. But they will also be different. They will be powerful, glorious, unfading, and incorruptible. Praise the Lord. Paul is encouraged when he remembers that such a body is waiting for him. All right, now in verse 3, he speaks about nakedness. What does that metaphor imply? Here is where we get into some of the disagreement I mentioned among scholars. Some scholars think that nakedness here refers to being unprepared for the final judgment. So they see it in an ethical or soteriological sense. But in this context, it seems more likely that Paul is talking concretely about not having a body. If tent means our present body and house means our future body, then nakedness must refer to a time or a possibility of being disembodied. And so many scholars take it that way. Douglas Moo, for example, says here, interpreted in this way, which follows the majority of scholarly assessments, this paragraph both stresses the certainty of being given a new resurrection body and implies the possibility of a transitional period of nakedness, that is, of being without a body, closed quote. He goes on to say that Paul reckons with the possibility that he will die before the parousia and will therefore have to endure a period of time without a body. This is also, of course, a time of great joy, being with Christ, he cites there Philippians 1.23. But in keeping with the biblical perspective on human beings, which views the body as basic to human identity, a time without a body is less than ideal. Being with Christ after death is a good thing, but living in the new heaven and the new earth in resurrection bodies is better. Closed quote. The ultimate hope of the believer is not disembodied existence, with all apologies to the Philadelphia cream cheese commercials, which seem to present the hope of the Christian as floating about on a cloud as some kind of angel or spirit. That's not what the Bible says. What the Bible seems to image for us is rather a healed, restored, glorified body. To be a human being is to be a union of spirit 
and body. I want that, Paul says, and I will have that at the resurrection. So Paul is pushing back here against the typical pagan idea of the afterlife. Greeks and Romans thought of the body as a sort of cage for the soul. They hoped that after death, they would be set free from bodily life. And there's a sense in which you can understand that. Bodies didn't smell so great back in those days. And there were all kinds of frailties and diseases and 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 things that we have somewhat overcome through technology and through science and through progress. And so it did incline them to think of the joy that there would be in being set free from all of this crass physicality. But that is not what Christians believe about the future. So Paul Barnett, for example, says here, Gentile readers within Greek culture need to be told that the disembodied state is incomplete until the general resurrection, however secure the soul of the righteous beyond death. Closed quote. He goes on to say, this verse establishes that Paul envisaged a state of disembodiment between death and the final resurrection. Closed quote. So putting this all together, it would seem that Paul's understanding of the afterlife looked like this. When a believer dies, he or she immediately goes to be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He says that in verse 8. But since we don't get our resurrection bodies until the resurrection, if a person dies before the return of Christ, then he or she will be spiritually with the Lord for a time without a new body. Now, that is good, Paul says. It is better to be with the Lord than to groan here in a fading earthly tent. But it is not our final destiny. It's not our ultimate hope. Our ultimate hope is to have a healed, restored, glorified body which we will get at the resurrection. That will be better still. So death puts us on a trajectory that passes through better to better still. That seems to be what he's saying. All of that is ahead. And and we can be certain of these things because we have been given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. If we have the Holy Spirit, then we will surely have all the blessings of eternity. Verse 6, So, We are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil. All right, so right now, we walk by faith, not by sight. We see all of this with the eyes of faith, but one day, our faith will be sight. So we keep putting one foot in front of the other. It's all onward and upward from here. Death is nothing to be feared. It simply ushers us into the presence of the Lord. What a glorious day that will be. Waiting with the Lord is better by far than withering away down here in the earthly tent. So we are of good courage, and we are eager at all times to please him, knowing that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Again, Paul is looking forward to find courage and direction in the present. And when Paul looks forward, he sees an appointment before the judgment seat of Christ. I wonder if you do. 
I am amazed at how many Christians I meet who seem to think that because they prayed to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior back at camp in 1984, they have no reason to anticipate a final judgment. They will often support that conviction by quoting Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, close quote. And, and listen, certainly it is true that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. But does that imply that there is no judgment? How can it? The same Apostle Paul who wrote Romans 8.1 also wrote 2 Corinthians 5.10, where he said, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Scott Haffeman says helpfully here, Paul's own way of life is based on his conviction that all believers will stand before Christ as judge. That unbelievers are also in view in 510 goes without saying, closed quote. I suppose it logically goes without saying, but practically speaking, it does not. Meaning, many Christians will say that Paul here must be talking about a special side judgment just for Christians, a sort of award ceremony. This will take place in a separate room and will be called the Bema Judgment. But it has nothing to do with the other judgment day that will be the experience of unbelievers. But actually, the word Bema just means judgment seat. It doesn't denote some kind of Christian antechamber or award ceremony. Saying the word in a different language doesn't create a separate experience. There is one judgment, and all people will stand before their maker and give an account for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. Are you prepared for that? Now, the fact that Christians will attend the final judgment does not imply that they will be saved by works. The works of a Christian are presented as evidence of their conversion. They are fruits of faith, and they will bring glory to God for his mercy and grace through Christ. They will vindicate believers. They will not justify believers. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. So we're, we're justified by faith, and we're vindicated by works. And the one doesn't contradict the other. Everyone stands before their maker at the end. Few things are taught more consistently in the Bible than that. Jesus, in Matthew 12, 36 to 37, says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Listen, my friend, if you have a theology that forces you to disagree with the Apostle Paul and Jesus, then you need a new theology. The Bible is very clear that all people will stand before their maker and give an account for what has been done and said in the body. This account will vindicate the believer and bring glory to their Savior and will condemn justly and incontestably those rebels and traitors who have refused his mercy and grace. By their words and actions, they will show themselves unfit for the world to come. Like it or not, believe it or not, Judgment Day is coming. And Paul is looking forward to that day. It's part of the future vision that is giving him encouragement and hope in the present. He expects to give glory to God on that day and to receive his reward as a faithful steward. Therefore, he is hard at work and diligently attending to his duties. This is an example 
we would be wise to follow. Verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So pause there. Paul has just said that he wants to be sure to please the Lord in everything. And he has just said that he knows he will have to give an account for himself, for his life, for his actions, for his words before the judgment seat of Christ. Therefore, thinking about that, focused on that, feeling the weight of that, we persuade others for two reasons, presumably. First of all, so as to help other people prepare for that same appointment. And then secondarily, so as to enjoy that appointment more himself. That conversation will go better if Paul can speak about how the goal of his life was to see more and more people reconciled to God through the person and work of Christ. So having stated that as his life goal, Paul begins to defend how he has conducted himself in his ministry, and also to provide a theological understanding of what it means to be reconciled to God. We jump back into the flow of his argument now in the second half of verse 11. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In terms of the defense of his ministry, Paul says here that who he is and how he has conducted himself is plain to God and hopefully is plain to them as well. Paul's intention is not to promote himself, but to provide them with a model and an example that they can be confident in identifying with. He wants them to be confident in speaking humbly and transparently from a context of lowliness and suffering. So he hopes that if they see him doing that, then they will be more likely to follow along in that same vein. In verse 13, Paul seems to be responding to the criticisms of his detractors who are saying that he is mad or crazy. To that, Paul says that whatever he does, it is ultimately for the service of God and others. If that makes a person mad, then so be it. I'm constrained by the love of Christ. And so I'm sure I do any number of things that seem odd to a person who is living for themselves. That's the basic idea here. And it allows Paul to transition into a discussion about the basis for this ministry of reconciliation that he is so diligently pursuing. It is based on the fact that one has died for all, all without distinction here, that is Jew or Gentile, and therefore all have died. The all there refers to all who are in Christ Jesus through faith. What Paul is talking about here is substitutionary atonement. He is saying that the death of Jesus can be the death that we owe to God. The wages of sin is death. All human beings sin. All human beings are sinners. Therefore, all human beings owe God a death. And because of who Jesus is, his death can be that death. So Colin Cruz says helpfully here, only because Christ is the incarnate Son of God could the death of one be for all. Only the death of this one could redeem us from the curse of the law. The death of a mere human being could never achieve this. Close quote. The blood of Jesus Christ is infinitely precious, 
And therefore, if that blood is applied to your account by grace through faith, then your debt will be fully paid. Hallelujah. That is the heart of the heart of the heart of the gospel. In verse 15, Paul says that this was that those who live might live not for themselves, but for Christ. So the blood of Christ is a ransom. It buys us out of something unto something. We are now slaves and debtors to Christ to live for him. This is what Paul is all about. His life's goal, his life's work is to see people set free from their bondage to sin and death and to see them following, worshiping, serving, and delighting in Christ. Verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In these closing verses, Paul says that his whole understanding of Christ has changed. He once viewed him in a very human, carnal way, as a false prophet within Judaism whose followers needed to be hunted down and suppressed. But now he understands who Jesus really is. He is the savior of the world. He is the first fruits of the new creation. He is ushering in a whole new world. He has come to heal and restore nature. All this is from God, who is reconciling the world to himself through Christ. And this is the ministry we've been called into. What a privilege. What a dignified, noble calling. We are ambassadors of a coming kingdom. We are emissaries of a victorious king. And therefore, it is our joy to implore everyone to be reconciled to God. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. A means has been provided. God made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. That is substitutionary atonement. God treats Jesus on the cross as if he were us, so that he can treat us for all eternity as if we were Jesus. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of the Lord. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have first-hand, on-the-ground experience with. 
Mile one is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 